seeking uh, God's help. Let's turn back to Hosea chapter 4 and we'll read uh, verse 1 again. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Perhaps uh, here in uh, one of your schools, if they're uh, very professional, or over in the high school in Stornoway, or maybe you've been to uh, the theatre or a pantomime or something like that, uh, you know that the stage can be managed. It can be managed in such a way so that the setting and scene can be changed uh, throughout the performance. As the curtain closes over one scene, it opens to reveal the next one. And so as we continue in the book of Hosea, I was mentioning earlier that we looked at chapter 2 last night. Well, chapter 1, it starts off at the marriage ceremony between Hosea and Gomer, and then also the maternity ward as they have the birth of their three children. We we even saw uh, the three names that are given uh, to these children in chapter 1 are then reversed in chapter 2. And chapter 2, last night, the scene was different. We were in the wilderness, eventually. God brings his people back out into the desert to remind them of where their relationship began where they were exiting Egypt and passing through the Red Sea and being provided for in the middle of nowhere. And in chapter 3, we didn't look at it, but you can see it there in your Bibles. Chapter 3 takes you to the slave market. It takes you to the slave market as Hosea buys back his adulterous wife. And now the curtain opens on chapter 4, and you're in the courtroom. However, in this scenario, the Lord is both the judge and he is the prosecutor. God is both the judge over all that is happening, and he is prosecuting those who have offended. The rest of uh, Hosea... The rest of the book, it highlights the seriousness and the depravity of Israel's situation as they spiral in sin and remain unrepentant. There's no other way than uh, to tell you, if perhaps you've seen, maybe those on the live stream have seen, that the title of this service and sermon is Chaos. Because Israel's sin and our sin is chaotic. And that's the result of what we'll see through Israel's unrepentance uh, this afternoon. And in these uh, verses, we want to notice, and even just these first three verses in particular uh, this afternoon... The first three verses. I want to notice what Israel lack, what Israel have, and what Israel needs. What Israel lack, what Israel have, and what Israel needs. Well, let's see, first of all, what 
they lack. Uh, there is uh, a charge that is brought against them, right? Uh, from the beginning in verse 1, there is no faithfulness in the middle of verse 1 or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. It's an emphatic threefold accusation and there's the repetition of the word no. It's as if they are rhetorically being asked, are you being faithful? No. Are you loving? No. Is there personal knowledge of God? No. Whatever empty shell of religion they did present, it was holding no grounds before God. First, there is no faithfulness. Or literally, there was no truth. And somebody testifies in court They are often sworn in, promising to be faithful to what they say. I will tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They are given their word that they will not mislead the court. Israel's word wasn't worth anything at all. They may say that they are sorry... But then they run back to the sin that they've apologised for. They may pledge to be different, but never actually endeavour to change. They may promise their love and their devotion, but then give all of their affection to the world and to their idols, to their other gods. There is no faithfulness. There's no truth. Second, there is no steadfast love. This is the word that is used by God to describe his real, true, steadfast love towards his his people. It's his covenant, committed love to them. In the book of Hosea, This word for steadfast love, it appears six times. And it's used in the chapter that we looked at last night in chapter 2 and verse 19. He's saying to Israel, after all that they've done, that was the point last evening, after all of their spiral into sin, and it looked like he was just going to sign the divorce papers and leave them, Because why would he go after them again and again and again? Because he loves them. And he says in verse 19, or it says of him, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. It will be a marriage relationship which is completely characterized by God's love. While I'm at home on the island uh, over these next few days, I'm going to be meeting up with a couple on Monday evening who have asked me to marry them. Uh, And the reason we meet and plan beforehand is for various reasons. Uh, But one is to 
go over the vows that they're going to make on their special day. Not just about how nervous they might be, that they have to say something uh, from down the front, that they have to open their mouths, but the importance and the solemnity of what they will say when they speak their vows down at the front of the church. In your vows, your marriage vows, you declare your love and your commitment to your new wife or your new husband. But it's all well and good to say it on that day. On the day of, that's been so anticipated. The day that you've been counting down to. The day where you're all full of love and joy. Happy, good days like that. Where you're surrounded by your family and your friends. It's all well and good to say it on happy days like that day. But the vows that they will make, and many of you have made many years ago, envisaged harder days to come. In sickness and in health. For richer or poorer. For better or worse. Will the love that you proclaim, I will ask them, I ask myself, even in our marriage vows, will the love that we proclaim be the love that you show? This is the love that you are asked to display to your husband or wife. It is the love God shows to each and every one of us who are his people. It is not the kind of love God has been shown by Israel. And then thirdly, so there's no faithfulness, there's no love. Thirdly, there is no knowledge of God. Of course, Israel knew God. They knew about God. But this is not simply head knowledge about God. Anybody can have that. Satan has that. This is not just knowing about God. It is to experience and to have a relationship with God. When you do not acknowledge the Lord, you will not have faithfulness. You will not show love towards him. You see, from this knowledge, from this relationship, springs everything else. Israel was living their lives as if they had never encountered God. They were conducting themselves like the, like the Lord had never rescued them from their enemies, as we were singing in Psalm 66. As if God had not blessed them abundantly or cared for them continually. Now, as we progress in these dark verses, we'll see exactly what the result of their choices was. But their lives spiraled further and further 
into chaos. Israel may well be like that. But Scotland is like that. And dare I say Shawbost is like that. And dare I say we are like that. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. The less we acknowledge God, the further we too will spiral into chaos. I was um, sitting with a man uh, just a few weeks ago at our uh, Road to Recovery group. And he knew everything. He had uh, perhaps spent most, if not all, of his life intoxicating himself with anything and everything. He'd been in and out of prison and hospitals. But he knew his Bible. And he knew about God. And he asked me lots of hard questions. But he did not know God. As far as I could discern. But the same I can say about the person who lives on my street. This well-to-do fellow. Elderly in years. He's got a posh accent. And I go and I sit with him. In a nice house. In a nice car. And I sit in his living room. And he tells me. Andrew. All you need to do is keep the Ten Commandments. He's lived there for the last 40, 50 years, across the road from the manse. Three ministers have come and gone. And still, this is his stance. He knows about God. But he does not know God. And if you were to come and sit at the Lord's table tomorrow, come if you know God if you know who he is that you don't just know about him you may come to the Saturday service of the communion maybe the Friday and all the Sunday but do you know who God is and what he has done for you do you know about Jesus Christ that he paid the price for your sin if you would believe in him if you know that Jesus Christ died on that cross for you then don't sit behind that curtain but come don't sit in your home but come come to the Lord's table come to Jesus confessing your sin and professing him as your Lord. This is what Israel lacked. But what did Israel have? Secondly, what did they have? We see in verse 2 and 3. Uh, let me just read it again. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. 
and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Verses 2 and 3 are a dark picture of a people who are lost, tangled in sin and not looking for their way out. Uh, we uh, preached through the book of Hosea in uh, Tain and Fern and both uh, Alistair Macaulay and myself uh, found it very challenging uh, to preach all the way through. After chapter 3, the, the landscape it changes to poetry where there's just these repeated cycles of God's threat of judgment and Israel's descent into chaos. As I, I tried, even in preparation for preaching this sermon, as I tried to settle on what part of this chapter or even chapters 4 to 6, where was God wanting me to preach? As I read through these chapters and these cycles of judgment and noticing Israel's sin after sin, even as we spent time last night thinking about the love, the deep love of God, and even that he went to the slave market we saw through Hosea in chapter 3 to redeem his adulterous wife, and how much more God does that for his people. And I'm looking through chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and where can we settle? Where can we find somewhere to hook on to? Maybe even as we uh, read it together today. And if you were here last night, where is the hope in Hosea? Where is the hope that we can latch on to even this afternoon? And in my study, as I was looking at these uh, chapters, I had this image in my mind. It's like you're climbing up this muddy hill and every time you try and put your foot on the ground, it slips back down because there's nowhere to get some grip and traction and find a way forward. I was wondering, where is the hope for Israel in these chapters? And then God showed me. He was saying to me, this is the point. When you turn away from God, when you run to a life of sin, it leaves you with no hope, no solid place to stand, nowhere to root your life, nowhere to grip onto and find ultimate meaning for life. And this is what Israel have in verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. There's not much hope in that verse. Do you notice uh, in that verse that Hosea lists half of the Ten Commandments? The third, the ninth, the sixth, the eighth, and then the seventh. All these commands have been broken. And for sure they've broken them all. And they're listed in this mixed up order because their lives are a mixed up mess. And I think uh, deliberately Hosea leaves us with this last one to keep its distaste in our, in our minds 
that they have committed adultery. Israel has committed spiritual adultery. They are running off from the covenant God to all of their own idols of wood and stone. Israel has, com has broken commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Listen to what God says repeatedly in these commands. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. So don't think as we consider Israel, don't think that they've just taken a, a wrong turning in their faith journey. They've made one or two mistakes. No, rather in defiance and a desire only to please themselves, they turn back from the Lord and they're the ones who are saying, we shall, we shall, we shall. Let me reverse these first two commands for you. It's like Israel is saying to God, we shall have other gods before you. We shall make for ourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. We shall bow down to them and worship them. You know, reading through uh, these verses uh, in my study, it brought my mind to a memory I don't think I've thought about since it happened. Since I thought of, since I saw it on the television all the way back in 2011. Uh, you may remember the riots that took place in London uh, for several nights in a row. The streets of Tottenham especially were filled with looting uh, and stealing from shops and buildings. Cars were being and bins were being deliberately set on fire and protesters were fighting with the police on the streets. This is the scene, this is the picture of chaos that immediately came into my mind. This is the result of immorality. Man doing what he pleases. This is what happens when a people lack truth, lack love and lack a relational knowledge of God. In verse 3, because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, of the air and, e and the fish of the sea are dying. And we're all the way back in the beginning in Eden. Adam and Eve were given possession of the beautiful garden, but once sin entered it, they were removed from it. And now Israel were given possession of the promised land, but because of their because of their rebellion, their blessings would be taken from them. A repetition of the fall was taking place. Sin always has consequences. And it's no different for Israel. They're, they're going to see their land drying up. Harvests will not be plentiful. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and even the fish of the sea are going to die out. No wonder the earth mourns. Sin always has consequences. It's no different for Israel, and it's no different for you. 
You may think nobody else will be affected by this. Nobody else even knows what I do or where I go. Even if that be true, it will never stay hidden. We touched on it in singing Psalm 66. The eyes of God are on the nations. Be sure your sins will find you out. Sin snowballs. It escalates. It gets out of control. It's addictive. When we have a little, we always want a little bit more. This is the tragic fruit of forsaking the knowledge of God, of truth, mercy, Satan, he sings sweetly to us, making us think or hope that casting these things away will be a doorway to freedom. But it is always only a path to destruction. This is what they lack, this is what they have. And then thirdly, with some hope. This is what they need. Is there any hope? Is there any way out for Israel? Is there any way out for you or me? What Israel needs to hear, and what you need as well, is the word of the Lord. If you've been running from Christ, if you have drifted from your faith, then listen up and listen in to what the Lord is saying. Come back with me to the very beginning of verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Here's the hope. The Lord is bringing his charges against them, revealing their sin to them. Until we see our sin, we will never see our needs. It's as if God is holding up the mirror to them that they may see their need of him and return to the Lord. And also he calls them Israelites. That's who they are. They are the sons, the children of Israel. They are the covenant people. They are the ones he's rescued out of Egypt, took them out of slavery provided miraculously for in the wilderness. He is the one who's been to the slave market and bought them back. He has shown great love to them. Now he wants to reveal to them their sinful ways and call them back to himself. Remember where we started in the law court? We said that God was both the prosecutor and the judge. Well, he also takes up one more role in that courtroom too. He is the one who represents the accused. He's the one who represents you. The guilty must be punished. But instead of the punishment landing on your head, he will take it on his. This is the depth of love and grace of God that we will spend eternity marvelling at. 
that God so loved the world that God would go after sinners, after you, that God would buy you back at the cost of his one and only son. If you have lost sight of God, then hear the word of the Lord. Come back to him. Come back to Calvary and just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus with me on the cross representing you, your sin, every one of them, past, present and future, dealt with up there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, his people, and return. Martin Luther gave this very helpful quote. He said, who can fully appreciate the meaning of this royal marriage? Who can understand the glorious riches of this grace? This rich and divine husband Christ marries a poor and wicked prostitute, redeems her from all her evil, and clothes her with his goodness. Her sins cannot destroy her now, because they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And so the curtain closes on this scene. The prosecutor has made his case. The judge has given his pronouncement as the guilty are set free because the innocent takes their place. And I do hope and pray that each of you will take your place at the Lord's table tomorrow. And that these final words of this hymn writer would be true for you to say and sing. At the cross of Jesus, my pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness. In the blood he shed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you again this afternoon, thanking you, as we've seen even from this picture, this scene of the courtroom, where there seemed to be no hope, just sin, chaos. As we think about our own lives, Lord, we know that all too well to be a description of us. That sin wreaks havoc in our lives. And yet, Lord, we thank you that though we should be judged as guilty, that the prosecution is correct, (coughs) yet, Lord, we marvel here this afternoon as sinners saved by the grace of God that we go free that we are liberated from our sin. And we're not just released from sin, but we are brought into a relationship with you, our God. 
So be with us, strengthen us over this weekend. As you call us back as a village, as a congregation, as individuals. Lord, may we come running to you, confessing our sin and praising our Saviour for what he has done. We ask it all in his name. Amen.